Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. Uh, sorry about the little mix-up with uh, our video. We're not sure what's going on. We are trying to get it figured out so that it quits happening. But uh, we may go a little shorter today as many of you are back with us a second time, and we appreciate that. Um, we are in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the 12th verse, um, a kind of section that is in most of the Gospels. And I'll just read it, and then we can talk. There is quite a bit, uh, surprisingly, to unpack here. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, I think anybody familiar with the Jesus story knows that Jesus had a group of men around him called the disciples or the apostles. Um, what's interesting here in Luke is that Luke gives us the impression that Ju Jesus has selected that group from a larger group of potential. And, uh, you know, it, you don't want to read too much into this, Michael. I want to be careful. But it's interesting that Luke says that Jesus, the night before he made these choices, spent the evening in prayer. I, I, I'm not saying that Luke wants us to see that connection there, but it seems relatively um, it seems relatively possible, maybe even likely, that Luke is connecting Jesus' night of prayer with his ultimate narrowing of this pool of men mm -hmm. to 12 and the particular men that he's chosen here. Um, again, I, I, wanted, I, I don't want to tell you straight out that that's what Luke is saying, but it seems likely that Luke wants us to pick up on that. Yeah, and don't miss either the the connection that this has towards the latter part of the story. And I know that we shouldn't skip ahead, but the next time that Jesus is going to be praying all through the night and it's going to involve his disciples, they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. So don't miss the fact that here Jesus is praying before he calls his disciples and then he's praying at that crucial evening before his trial and his crucifixion, and there he has his disciples with him. And in many ways, that bookend shows us Jesus's faithfulness. Jesus is a man of prayer. He's a man of conviction. Jesus is the one who follows in God's way. Jesus is the one who holds the weight and bears the burden. These disciples both uh, in the beginning of their call, and then even at the end of their call, they're going to rely upon Jesus. They're going to find Jesus to be the one who carries the weight for them. And I, I think that there's a lot of senses to that. We shouldn't spend too much long time, like you said, Clint. I, I think that some of this is simply that before a big decision or for before a big moment, we find Jesus in prayer. And I think that that is very much part of the story that Luke is trying to tell us here. Yeah. And you recently did a class on the 12 disciples. You know, I, I think, and push back on this if you disagree, I, I think the disciples are an interesting study in the New Testament because in the Gospels, they are present. They're not particularly important. And and what I mean by that is that they don't take a great deal of leadership. They are often pictured getting things wrong as often as getting them right. 
they do have moments of courage. They have moments of insight. Mm-hmm. But but all the gospel writers in their own way make it pretty clear that the story is not really about them. You could maybe say that John with the beloved di- disciple stuff highlights their role a little bit more. But I think the gospel writers take steps to make sure and, and um, protect against the story becoming about these men. Having said that, when you look in a book like Acts, these men become leaders, they, they perform miracles, they preach, they do missionary stuff, they do healings. Um, th- their role becomes in some ways much more prominent and upfront in the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection. But we do know throughout the rest of the story, these are the 12, these are the 12 men who are going to travel with Jesus. They're going to see what happens. They're going to relate the stories. They're going to have ups and downs. They're going to um, suffer in many of, many of them in cases, particularly after Jesus, but even to some extent through the story, uh, particularly late in the story. And I, the, we've always accorded them in the, faith of special place. And I think rightly so. I just think it's interesting that in the Gospels, the writers are so um, committed to focus on Jesus that they don't really seem too interested in the stories about the disciples. In fact, having taught the class, I'd be curious if you agree with this. In the scripture itself, we know very little about these right. men. There, there's a lot of details we'd love to know about them, and it's lost to us. And I think that sort of speaks to the point. By the way, it's also true. Uh, there's more information in the historical church tradition record, yeah. but there's less than what you think, actually. Right. I think it's striking the number of disciples where it went something like, well, they might have gone here, and they could have gone here, but we think that maybe they actually went here. And there was a story about this, but we're not yet. Yeah. That stuff is very common. And, and my takeaway on that, though, Clint, is that actually I think when you find the disciples in the Scripture, there is a concerted effort by every gospel writer, I think. And I think that that would include John, though maybe there's some caveats in it. I think every gospel writer, though, at a very, very fundamental level— is trying to humanize the disciples in a way that I think serves to invite the reader to find themselves in that discipleship role. I think that what we discover in the Gospels is that, that they're fundamentally books about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and they're not history books. They're not about what these very notable people did. They're about this is the formational life of Jesus as he lived it with his followers, so therefore you can be formed by it so that you can be a follower. So I think there's an odd way in which the gospel writers walk this this really interesting, strange kind of path where they want you to know about Peter, they want you to know about John, but they don't want you to revere them. They don't want you to put them on a pedestal. They want you to ask yourself, how am I called to be a disciple? How am I called to be an apostle? How am I called even in my failure, even in my lack of faith? Uh, In the midst of our own living of our own real human lives, the gospels show real human disciples. And I just, you know, that was one of my big takeaways from that class is, is that we 
we are tempted to make celebrities, but the Bible's not. Yeah, I think very true. And uh, interestingly, having said that we don't know as much about these men as we'd like to, what is interesting is even in the little we know, we see some pretty interesting, some pretty fascinating realities. So as you read this list, you have fishermen, you have uh, a man, Matthew, who was a tax collector, sort of in collusion, most would have said, with Rome. And then right there alongside him, you have this man named Simon who was a zealot or who was called the zealot. The zealots were a party that wanted to overthrow Rome violently. You have an amazing diversity in these 12 men, to, as much as you would have in a group of 12 first century Jews, I think. You have in Luke, and this is one of the um, particulars of Luke's list, you have two Judases. Um, most people, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, think that this first Judas, the son of James, is more often called Thaddeus. Um, in the other Gospels, probably called Thaddeus. As you can imagine, after the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, Judas becomes not a name yeah. that you really give to anybody or that you celebrate. And so um, if there is a second Judas, we know him, we think, as Thaddeus and and that leaves Judas Iscariot the one. Who, so there's no confusion about who is the betrayer. But this is an interesting group of men. We, we sort of know from their stories, James and John are impulsive. Peter often seems to be a, a know-it-all. Uh, we, we don't get the sense that any of these men are by themselves, in and of themselves, anything special or important. They're not chosen because of their status, because of their wealth, from anything that we can tell. Um, and yet Jesus, having prayed all night, is led to this particular group of 12 people, each one serving a purpose, each one bringing something unique to this group. Uh, it would be nice to know in more cases what that was and to have more stories about that. Um, we get some glimpses of it, and we'll get some glimpses of it through the book of Luke. But um, we d we just don't know as much as we wish we did. There's a beautiful diversity in these characters, like you say, Clint, and there's actually a rich Christian history in understanding their lives and, and their importance. And I, I think that maybe as Protestants, we work so hard to extract ourselves from some of the systems and some of the orders that that came about over the thousands of years of church development that maybe we did miss some of the humanity of these people. And I think it's worth at least spending time. If you haven't before, uh, take a little time, pick up a book and read a, a little bit about these men because the the fact that they are included so little, really, in the content of the story, uh, quantitatively, is in many ways overshadowed later when we find out that these are the men who died for their faith, who went to all corners of the world. In fact, they, by the end of their lives, the faith had spread throughout the entire known world. There's good reason to think the faith had made it to India and certainly to the farthest western part of Europe, if not potentially into Great Britain already. And that was just in their lifetimes. And that is a testament to their courage and to their their true belief in this man, Jesus, and, and what he changes. The only thing I'll add, last word, um, Judas, as you said, 
has a really bad reputation, and and history has not been kind on the word Jew. That's one thing I learned. Um, just to put in the back of your trivia hat knowledge, there's a thing called the Judas goat. Mm-hmm. The Judas goat is a goat that is trained in uh, in, in cattle yards in in meat processing facilities. The goat is trained to go and assimilate with the other goats and then lead them to the location where the animals are killed. And all of the other animals will be processed. And then that animal is spared and allowed to do it to the next group. And it's called the Judas goat. And I learned that and thought, Ooh, that's dark. Yeah. Judas is certain. There have been some modern ideas that maybe Judas was trying to do something good the early church and the history of Christianity has largely um, chalked up what Jesus did to the worst, or what Judas did to the worst of motives. Uh, the the one last thing I'd add, Michael, and I think to your point, and maybe this is particularly true in Luke, and I say that because of Luke's next work with the book of Acts, there is a, a if you read those two works, there's a very distinct difference between the gospel the gospel account of the disciples before the resurrection who desert Jesus and who don't think he's been resurrected and who think the women are telling them stories and don't understand what's happening. And then the men they become in the aftermath led by the Holy Spirit as they guide the church and as they spread the good news of the gospel. And I think because Luke gives us both both ends of the story, we see, in some sense, the the fullest development of their own stories, and I think, you know, to some extent, they are downplayed in the front end of the story. But in the post resurrection part of the story, in the church part of the story, they become, yeah. in many ways, the thrust of the story. As, uh, particularly if you include Paul among their number, which we could talk about some other point. But Paul's included in this. The thing that they share consistently, even post-resurrection, is the unlikeliness of their success, the yeah. unlikeliness of their leadership, the unlikeliness that in Acts, uh, one of the comments is, aren't these men just Galileans? The idea being, how, where did you learn to speak in public? And I think that that's part of the reputation that the gospel writers actually carefully wrote within their stories was to make, make sure that we understood that, that Wherever they did something great, that should reflect upon God's greatness and not their education or their training or their charisma, that this is God working through them. Yeah, and that's a beautiful takeaway because I think all of us at some point as we've led our own path of discipleship have thought, well, if I could could write, if I could sing, if I could, you know, and and we have felt ordinary and maybe not up to the task of— sharing faith because of our ordinariness. And it is a helpful and humbling reminder that Jesus really sought ordinary kind of from the outset. I mean, that Jesus wasn't looking for extraordinary. And and or, those of us who feel like we fit the bill of ordinary still have wonderful opportunities yeah. to be disciples because it's not ultimately about who we are but about who Jesus is, and, and I think we see that right at the beginning here. It's a good summary. I'm glad that you were with us today. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Until then, be blessed. Thanks. Thanks.